Well, we started a brand new series a couple of weeks ago titled Names. And if you haven't been here for the last couple of weeks, I would really, really encourage you to go and get yourself caught up at grumlaw.com slash messages or find us under Grumlaw Church, wherever it is that you happen to grab those podcasts. But really quick, let me kind of give you the 5,000 foot view of what we are talking about, what we're discussing in this series. Every name, whether you've actually ever put this together or not, it conveys both an identity as well as a purpose. Uh, For example, uh, we oftentimes will refer to our youngest child is Dr. Destructo, and uh, he didn't earn that moniker by accident. His identity is that of like this child that just goes around the house kind of destroying things. He rips books off of shelves. He he knocks down the latest creation of our other two children. Uh, This time of the year, he's really into ripping ornaments (laughs) off of the Christmas tree. His purpose, it would seem, is to kind of keep his parents on the ready at all times. Names are important. Names tell a story. We've all experienced, obviously, the negative side of this as well, where a specific name repeatedly declared over your life has steered your life in a direction completely devoid of what your heavenly Father has planned for you. So so our hope and our prayer is that during this Christmas season, as we explore four of the names of Jesus himself, you'll learn more about him. That that for those of you that are just beginning to explore, you're just starting to lean in, it'll cause you to be even more interested in him. And for those of you that have already placed your trust, you've already placed your faith in him, it'll cause you to fall even more in love with him. Now, the four names that we're examining uh, aren't random names that were just pulled out of a hat. They're actually four specific names that we get from the book of Isaiah, a book that we find in the Old Testament, sort of that first half of the Bible. For for those of you who aren't familiar with Isaiah, he he was a prophet. This means that this was someone who spoke on behalf of God, oftentimes in a predictive manner, something we would now come to refer to as prophecies. So, So keep in mind that these names, this prophecy given to Isaiah from God, what was uttered some 700 years before Jesus ever actually stepped foot on the earth. So here we look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. This is kind of our theme verse for the entire series. It says, For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called, here are the four names we're exploring, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And church, it's absolutely incredible that we read this and we know for certain that this is a reference to Jesus. We're so fortunate to have the benefit of hindsight because that original audience, as as Isaiah was saying this, they were scratching their heads. They they would have given up a lot to understand what we just know to be true, what we just assume. So so last week we talked about Jesus as the wonderful counselor, uh, the wonderful counselor that every single one of us need. And and this week we're going to be examining name number two, Jesus is the mighty God. I'm going to let y'all in on something that probably hasn't gone unnoticed by some of you, especially those of you that have been at this church thing for a little while. In churches, and even more specifically, people like me that do what I do for a living, we very much enjoy talking about God from the angle that's nice, comfortable, and kind of welcoming to all of you. For instance, there's basically never a Sunday that goes by where you're not going to hear about grace and mercy and forgiveness and kindness and gentleness and joy. And of course, one of our favorite words, right? Love. And by the way, that's a good thing. We should absolutely talk about all of this. And this is absolutely what Jesus offers to you, you who are watching right now. And furthermore, I don't think there's a single person watching right now that wouldn't like a little bit more of this in their life. To to some extent, it's probably your search for this that likely led you to even watching this morning. And and because I know that, and other pastors know that, 
Churches tend to lean a little bit more into passages of Scripture that we find in the New Testament, that second half of the Bible, as opposed to the Old Testament, that first half of the Bible. Because the New Testament largely tells the story of Jesus himself, how God became flesh and dwelt among us, like love in action and the rise of the early Christian church. Whereas you read the Old Testament, it's largely the tale of a people that basically just continually wandered from God and God gently and other times not so gently would get them back on the right path. See, see, we love to talk about Jesus healing people. You know, he healing the blind, people that were unable to walk their entire lives can suddenly be on their feet and they're walking around amongst everyone. He would cross entire seas to save just one person restorative, uh, life-changing conversations with a woman at a well, saving an adulteress from certain death, and even letting religious people have it because, well, who likes religiosity? All of this resonates with us because it's very, very easy to insert ourselves into these situations, and rather than being met with criticism or being rebuked, we, we instead receive all of this. And I'm not saying that this is necessarily intentional. I think it's just kind of human nature, but I'll admit to you, I want all of you to like me. I want all of you to keep coming back. And so it's easy to lean in this direction and in turn sort of avoid a lot of that stuff that we find in the Old Testament, that first half of the Bible. But Because I don't know if you've ever read that thing for yourself, but in that first half of the Bible, there's a lot of stuff that actually feels like the complete opposite of all of this. There's a lot of warnings, a lot of ultimatums, hey, if you don't get your act together, there are going to be consequences, plenty of destruction to go around, bitterness. There's this hopelessness, in fact, as you read it. It's like, are they ever going to get their acts together? Plenty of shame. And honestly, this whole book, it's kind of the tale of discouragement. See, see, that second half of the Bible, the New Testament, it's kind of like the mighty ducks, right? The underdog prevails against all the odds. In Toy Story, the pitiful toys, they're finally reunited with their loving owner. And in the Old Testament, well, it's kind of like Manchester by the Sea. Now, I don't know that all of you have ever like seen this movie. I'll, I'll explain to you the premise. Uh, a bunch of people get together, their lives are super depressing, and then the movie just ends. That's, that's basically it. And that's kind of what's going on there as you read the, like, the Old Testament. It's just these people kind of moping around, and you get done, and you're like, that was kind of depressing. And where it's easy to insert ourselves into much of the text found within the New Testament, and, and we kind of emerge victorious— it's not quite as much fun inserting ourselves into that first half of the Bible. In fact, when you read the Old Testament, again, it's largely the tale of a people who are promised over and over and over and over again that they really do love God, that they want to obey him. But then they inevitably wander, they fail, they kind of wait for God to bail them out. He does, then he warns them to cut it out, but then they just kind of keep on repeating the cycle. And if we're being honest, when we look at this pattern, it's it's hard not to kind of see ourselves as repeating the exact same mistakes, which again is why I think we gravitate towards that second half. Because when we rebel, when, when we screw up, when we make mistakes, when we sin, we want to be met with mercy and, and grace, not warning and judgment. Not to mention throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the Israelites' history are these occasions where where God would actually allow them to suffer the consequences of their poor decision-making. And again, I can't speak for you, but I read that and I kind of think to myself, well, uh-oh. But, but it's really, really important for us to understand that the same God that we read about in this half of the Bible is the same God that we read about in this half of the Bible. 
God didn't just suddenly flip a switch and change who he is. Remember, God does not change. He cannot change because if he could, it would mean that he could get better, which he can't. He's already perfect, which means that absolutely, yes, as Isaiah declares to all of us, God is the wonderful counselor. He is the everlasting father. He is the prince of peace, but, but he is also the mighty God, the, the, the mighty the jealous, the I ain't sharing my glory for a second God that maybe isn't quite as warm and fuzzy as we would like him to be. And what I'm going to attempt to show us this morning is that by gaining a better understanding of just how powerful, just how mighty, just how omnipotent Jesus is, it will cause his humility to stand out that much more. It'll cause you to stand even more in awe of him. Now, as we've already mentioned, God, when, when giving these names to the prophet Isaiah, he didn't just pick them out of a hat. He was very intentional. The, the, the Israelites at this point, and really at many other points throughout their history, it was a bit up and down to say the least, that they're regularly testing God's patience, that they're belittling his name, they're questioning his authority, questioning if he is going to or if he is even able to fulfill his promises. And God's kind of looking down at him going, I think you've forgotten just how powerful, just how mighty I am. R remember when I led you out of Egypt, parting entire seas along the way? R remember when you would go into battles completely outnumbered? And, and I would literally cause such confusion among your enemy that they would actually start killing each other. You wouldn't even have to raise your sword. Have you completely forgotten about who I am, the, the power that I possess? Now, now remember, this is a prophecy specifically about Jesus, who, who is God in the flesh. But it's also important to note that when we learn something about the God that we find in the Old Testament, we're also learning something about Jesus in the New Testament. When we read about, for instance, God allowing entire people groups to be annihilated because of their blatant rebellion and their sin, we just learned something about who Jesus is as well. He does not take our sin lightly. Similarly, when we read about Jesus showing kindness to a prostitute and extending to her the very thing that she deserved the least, we're also learning something about God the Father as well. He's both kind and merciful while also being just and righteous. The same Jesus who dined with notorious sinners was also present when the world was created. In John chapter 1, this is one of those four biographical accounts of the life of Jesus. Uh, John was one of these guys who spent virtually every waking moment with Jesus. He, he leaves these words for us. He says, in the beginning, the Word. This is actually another name for Jesus. In the beginning, the Word, Jesus, already existed. He has always existed. The Word, Jesus, was with God, and Jesus was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. So the same God that literally created the heavens and the earth is the same God that walked the Israelites through the Red Sea on dry ground as they escaped their captors, is the same God who annihilated Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin and rebellion, is the same God who became flesh and dwelt among us, is the same God that knelt down and extended grace to a lowly prostitute, is the same God who died on a cross for you, is the same God who conquered the grave, is the same God who still lives today. 
See, the Israelites, they sure like to focus on the God who is patient and kind and delivers them from the hand of their enemies. But they had kind of made a habit of neglecting the powerful God who demands loyalty and respect. We love to focus on the Jesus of grace, mercy, and love, while sort of ignoring the Jesus who said, if, if any of you wants to be my follower, if you want to be a, a follower of mine, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. Submit yourselves to the mighty God. He's saying, submit yourself to my authority. Literally, give up your way of doing things, your preferences, what, what, what you would like, and submit to me because you understand that you are the creation. And Jesus says, I am the creator. We mentioned this in part one. That there are literally hundreds of names that have been used to point to Jesus. But God, through Isaiah, chose four very specific names. He, he, he knew what we all actually know. What the ancient Israelites kept forgetting. That it's just easier to focus on Jesus as the gracious, merciful Savior than it is Jesus, the mighty God. So, a couple of observations to share with us. And then I'm going to give us some why this matters to all of us. First, Jesus demonstrated his might before his earthly birth. Now, listen, if you're watching right now and you're skeptical, maybe you're just kind of beginning to lean in, I recognize that you might subscribe to a different creation story than the biblical narrative that we would subscribe to around here. And that's fine. We're so glad you're here. But, but regardless of which account of creation that you would subscribe to, whether it's that biblical narrative, big bang, steady state, bouncing cosmology, we can all agree that any of these, any of those, they require an element of faith. None are like these ironclad arguments because if they were, we would all believe the same thing. And I'm telling you that I am choosing to put my faith on the side of God, which actually has plenty of scientific backing as well, you're choosing to put your faith in a scientific theory. By the way, I'm not belittling you for making that decision. I'm just pointing it out. And within that biblical creation narrative, Jesus was there. Now, I recognize that again, if again, you're just kind of beginning to explore, maybe even those of you that have been at this for a long time, that this whole idea of the Trinity can be a little bit confusing. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all three fully God while also being three distinct persons. But within this biblical narrative, God created entire galaxies. He, he created you and I. He created human beings so wonderfully complex that even the greatest mind still cannot explain everything within a human being. I, I, I would say that that alone is a pretty audacious display of might. Again, he demonstrated his might before his earthly birth, but he also demonstrated his might during his time on earth. He was healing people left and right. He, he, he literally raised the dead back to life. There's this one occasion that, that I absolutely love where, where Jesus hops into a boat with his other disciples and they're sailing across the Sea of Galilee. And, and out of nowhere, the, this storm comes up. And the disciples, many of them trained fishermen, they know their way around a boat. They are convinced that they are absolutely going to die. Meanwhile, Jesus is taking a nap in the front of the boat, and somehow he's not waking up. And so finally, they go to him and they're like, Jesus, they wake him up. They're like, are you going to let us die out here? 
It says, when Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and he said to the waves, silence, be still. So so now he's talking to the weather. But, But suddenly the wind stopped and there was a great calm. Then he asked them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Do you still not understand who I am, the power that I possess? And the disciples, just as you and I would have been, were absolutely terrified. Because again, he just talked to the weather and it listened. And they said amongst themselves, who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Listen, the weather starts obeying you. I would call that mighty. I would call that powerful. And obviously his his ultimate might was demonstrated when he conquered death. Again, you might think stories like this are made up, but but how about the fact that his earthly ministry, it only lasted about three years. (laughs) And here we are some 2,000 years later, And his movement is still alive and well. In fact, all around the world, it is thriving. I'm thinking something must have occurred to grab the attention of the world. Maybe some of this stuff, most notably the whole predicting your own death and resurrection thing, and then it actually coming to fruition, maybe that actually occurred. And then Jesus continues to demonstrate his might today. We show these baptism stories every single Sunday, and that's not an accident. They are weekly testaments to the power of God at work in people's lives. There are countless marriages within this very church that were either facing divorce. Some of them, they already divorced, where then God comes along, gets in the middle of it, and completely restores what was hopeless, what was broken, what the courts declared, hey, this is unfixable. God, his might, his power has restored those things, and they're thriving. Just this week, I was reading about the Christian church in China. It's grown from roughly 3 million followers in the 80s to well over 100 million today. It is by far the fastest growing faith tradition in China, acknowledged even by their own government, despite massive persecution and the widespread government pushback. No government, no principality, no human hand can thwart what God has set in motion. Jesus is thriving because he is the mighty God. And you who are watching today, perhaps maybe just starting to explore, or maybe you've been kind of going through the spiritual motions for far too long, you have the opportunity, literally this morning, to ask that mighty God to be at the center of your life as well. The same God who possesses the power to speak entire galaxies into existence and is moving forward the underground church in China with such ease is the same God who takes a very personal interest in you. He's the same God who would have died for you if it was just you. He is the mighty God and your personal Savior. Unfortunately for us, even though we might try sometimes, you cannot separate the two. Because if you take Almighty God, you're left with judgment, religiosity. And we've all seen how religious institutions have hurt us and those around us with that model. And if you take exclusively love and grace, you're left with a Christian version of Woodstock where everything is tolerated and no version of morality is upheld. We are called to fall to our knees in submission and reverence while also running into his loving arms. 
And for some of you, because of what this world has shown you, that that can perhaps sound really confusing. But this is precisely why Jesus invites you into a relationship, a personal relationship with him. Because it's within the context of this relationship that sometimes I'm moved to quite literally fall to my knees and worship him. So overcome that the God of the universe has taken an interest in me, overcome by his might, his power. It it can literally be paralyzing. And other times, like this very week when wrestling with some really, really difficult news regarding our youngest child, I desperately just needed to feel the warmth of my Savior's embrace to assure me he loves Oakley and he hasn't forgotten about him. God holds both of these, mighty God and loving Savior, perfectly in balance. And I'm confident that as we understand this at a deeper level, it's impossible, it's impossible to not want to get to know him more. Because seriously, I want you to really think about this. How absolutely insane is it that the same mighty God who created this world out of nothing, I mean, he possesses that kind of power, also had the humility to take on the limitations of flesh and dwell amongst us. See, in literally every other instance in this world that we've ever seen, as someone ascertains more power, more might, they use it to leverage it for themselves. But Jesus comes along, and if there was ever someone who had a right to demand this, it was him. But rather than leveraging his authority, his might, his power for the benefit of himself, he instead leveraged it for your benefit. He leveraged his might for you. Who does that? And I'll tell you who. The mighty God, the wonderful counselor, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. When you consider just how powerful, just how mighty Jesus is, and then you think about the fact that he gained town to this earth for you, then died on a cross for you, then conquered death for you for your benefit, doesn't it make his redemptive work that much more rich? If you're going to fully appreciate and embrace the loving Savior, you also need to understand the mighty God. And what's even crazier, he takes it a step further. It is the same God who leveraged his might for you in the context of relationship. He actually offers you access to this might, to this power. Paul, in his early letter to the Christian church in Philippi, he offers these words to us. He goes, I I know what it means to lack. And I know what it means to experience overwhelming abundance. And every single one of us have experienced that. We've all been on the mountaintops and we've all been in the valleys. But then he says, I'm trained in the secret of overcoming all things. I have to think that every single one of us wants that. We all want to be trained in the secret of overcoming all things, whether in fullness or in hunger. And he's not just talking about physical hunger. And he says, and I find that the strength of Christ's explosive power infuses me to conquer every difficulty. That is the secret of overcoming all things. Access to Christ's explosive power, to his might. The secret that Paul had discovered was a secret when he wrote these words. Because the whole Jesus thing, it was still pretty new. 
Church, it's not really a secret anymore. The way you win in this life is by no longer relying on you. As we saw earlier, you give up your own way and you submit your life to the control of Jesus. Then and only then do we have access to this mighty God. The, the, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is available to you. In, in the context of relationship, with Jesus himself.